Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. I thought for a moment I might uh, get up and play something, you know, uh, extraordinary on the piano, but uh, <clears throat> I was advised to not do so. Um, might clear the room, I guess. Every year I, I give my bride a, a, an odd gift for our anniversary. Uh, actually, uh, it's one of those gifts that when someone put it to me uh, in the way that they did, I, I was like, oh, I, I guess that is what I give her for my anniversary every year. You see, every year on our anniversary, August 1st, uh, for many years now, I have, I have given her a really nice card with all the thoughtful words that all husbands should tell their wives on their anniversary. And then... Somewhere in the card or in person, I've just said, and I'm going to get a hotel for you and your friend Amy so that you two can go and have a girls weekend out of town. And I was telling a, a friend of mine this one time, and he said, so what you're saying is every year for your anniversary, you tell, you tell your bride that she can go somewhere else. <laughs> I thought, well, that's... It's not exactly what I had in mind, but I guess that is what I'm doing. And every year she goes, and um, they have done this a number of years now, and they, they go to the same spot, and on Sunday morning they go to the same church. And, and I remember that uh, when she came back one of those times and they had gone to this particular church, there was a, a really friendly, loving, older couple uh, that saw these two gals come in, knew that they were visitors, knew that they were from out of town, I uh, knew that they hadn't been at that particular church before, and uh, they, they came over afterwards uh, and just said, hey, w- would you like to come to lunch with us? We'd love to, uh, we would love just to buy your lunch. And so they thought, wow, that's kind of strange maybe, but that, sure, hey, free lunch. And so they got together with this older couple, and, and wouldn't you know it, it's small world that their daughter, this older couple's daughter, went to school with JoLynn's best friend. Crazy, isn't it? That's what I said. Wow. Now, I tell you that because I just, I just, I'm fascinated by that kind of story uh, where someone in the church would just be that loving. I don't know what they had going on all afternoon, but they saw somebody and said, hey, you know what, Uh, why don't we go out to lunch with those people? And it just got me thinking about the question that I have for you today. What's it take to be a loving church? Uh, What has to be present in a church uh, for for people to walk away thinking, that's a really good church? Uh, What has to be the active ingredient for people to walk away saying, they've got the love and feeling? What has to be there for a church? What has to be clarified in a church that longs to love? 
This morning, uh, we're going to end our series, Love Came Down, and, and we get an answer to our question. Now, we, we've come a long ways in this series. We really began uh, this whole journey together of, of Jesus coming from heaven to earth by, by talking about our superpowers. Remember that? We talked about the gifts that God gives. And we said, if we, if we misplace our gifts, then we're going to misplace our love. It's, it's not really about our superpower. It's about love. We can have the greatest thing in the world, but if we don't love, then we're nothing. We're empty. We're void. And we went on from that to really begin to talk about the attributes of love, the, the sort of love that we want to practice because it's the sort of love that, that Jesus came bringing with him. That when Jesus came and he came from heaven to earth, uh, he brought with him uh, the sort of love and demonstrated it to us that, that we ought to have for other people. And he said, hey, you know what? We can't be envious. Love is the opposite of envy. If we want to be loving, then we can't be envious because envy kills love. That was one of those attributes that we talked about. When all the kids were here and all the parents were in the seats trying to keep the kids patient uh, the week of the Christmas concert, I said love is patient. And we talked about how, how love, sometimes uh, we have to, uh, to gather up uh, all of our frustrations and realize that we have more time. That love can be patient. We said that love is a, is a protective roof over our head. It doesn't leak. Not the kind of love that Jesus gives. And that we can give that kind of love to other people, uh, even people that we need to put up with for a while. It's a safe covering. Last week we, we came and uh, we said, you know what? Love believes the best in others. Tries to, to not uh, attribute motive where there isn't one. We said, you know, love hopes and continues hoping. It, it, its hope is eternal and ongoing. It always looks for the light. And then love stands up. It stands up sometimes even under, under extraordinary pressure and weight. And I, I just want to know this morning with you, what is it that is present in a church to practice love that looks like that? When people walk away and go, yeah, yeah, they do have the love and feeling. And so this morning, Paul is going to lead us through a variety of contrasts. Uh, this man who was a leader of a church, who had preached there and established a church in, in this particular city, he comes around and he writes this chapter about love, which will end today, but gives us the answer to our question. What does it take? What's present in a loving church? And as he does, he's going to give us a series of contrasts. Oh, he's going to give us some gaps. He's going to show us some things that are different. And then by the time we're done, we're going to find that we're comforted and challenged. Would you look with me in the text uh, open up your Bibles. Uh, once more, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. I know we've been in 1 Corinthians 13 longer than it took Paul to write 1 Corinthians 13. 
But 1 Corinthians 13, nonetheless, is where we will be this morning. If you need a pew Bible, go ahead and reach out and grab one of those. If it's the hardcover, uh, it's page 800, and then page 1152, if you're in the soft cover. 1152. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to begin in verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of the childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Look at that first contrast. Look at that first gap, that first difference. And notice what Paul begins to do when he talks about love. Uh, Notice what he tries to point to, what he's hinting at in regards to what is better. He opens it up, verse 8, love never fails. If you were to look at that word of fails, it's really trying to say uh, love doesn't fall. It never loses its shine. It doesn't ever end. It it never loses its validity or its efficiency. Uh, It's like... It never, ever has a rain check, right? It doesn't ever end. It's like the Energizer Bunny that maybe you see on television. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going. And it's like that annoying joke that your kids like to tell you. It just keeps going. It's kind of like Pete and repeat. We're in a boat. Pete fell out. Who was left? Thank you. Thank you. It's just a joke. It's, it's not, not the love joke. Love is not a joke. But, but, but what Paul is saying is it's like that. It just keeps on going without stopping, without ever ending. It doesn't ever get tarnished. But there's a contrast. Now, here's a little Bible study note that I just can't help but, but tell you. Every time you see that little word, but, I want you to just go ahead and circle it in your Bible because there's a contrast coming. Uh, There's something different. There's a gap that, that the author wants us to be aware of. Love never fails. It never falls. It never falters. It doesn't lose its validity. It doesn't lose its efficiency. It never loses its shine. It just keeps going. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. It's interesting. He's he's contrasting love 
from the superpowers, the giftedness, the distinctives of the Corinthian church. As far as we know, at least in the New Testament, uh, these are some of the only places in the New Testament that, that these particular distinctives, these particular gifts are heightened, where people seem to have them, where they're sought after. And Paul seems to be saying, hey, I know that you have these distinctives in your church. I know that there's people that have these wonderful gifts. I know there's people that have these superpowers that you look up to, that you think are giants. But I want you to know something really important. It's going to die someday. Those things, ooh, those things... Yeah, it, was, it was like I was in ninth grade in football practice again. Ah! I turned 40 next week. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Is that like second puberty or something? Oh, man. <laughs> okay, back to Jesus, okay? Now, it's, it's like he's trying to say something really impactful. He's saying, he's saying, hey, hey, I know that you think these things are really important. I know that you, you, you have made these great big things in your church. I know these are distinctives. I know that you've come to identify yourself by the gifting that God has given you. I know that. But I want you to know something significant about those things that you value so highly. They're going to die. They're going to cease. Their heartbeat is going to stop. They're going to be a time when they are put on life support and they don't ever come off. You are going to have to pack up those things and you are going to have to put them in a casket and you're going to have to shut the lid and you're going to have to put them in the ground and cover them up and put a tombstone over that. The distinctives of your church, he's saying to them. The things that you value so highly, these gifts that you think are incredible. You realize that one day they will not be needed. And, and, and there's that hint, isn't there? There's that hint there that something else is coming, that something better is on the horizon. And he's trying to let us know, look, love is better. Love is going to be greater. Because he says it, love never fails. And it began to to. to, to conjure in my own mind at least, what are the distinctives of Whiting Christian Church? What are the gifts of the church at large that we love to love? In my world, in leadership circles, at the college, some of the gifts that people love to highlight are things like really good preaching, like, like sometimes we, we value preaching. Oh man, oh, he's such a good preacher, or they're such a great speaker, or whatever. And we've heightened that and we've placed it on a pedestal and we've gone, oh man, if I only. 
Or maybe it's leadership in the church. Oh man, if we just had great leaders and everybody had great leadership gifts and, and they could administrate and organize people, that's what we need. And we put some of those gifts way up here, don't we? Oh man, those people are holy. Those are the people, man, we love and value and oh, those are so good. I wish I had those gifts. We do that with all sorts of gifts, don't we? Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's, oh man, I wish I could play guitar like Josh. I wish I could be musical like that. I wish I could lead other people in music. Or maybe it's distinctives for our church. Like, man, we really have great small groups, or, or we have the most prayer times, or we have great Sunday school. But what Paul is saying is at the end of the day, at the end of time, all that is going to be unnecessary. It's going to cease. Those things that we value so much, the preaching, the music, the administration, all of it, it's going to end. But not love. Not this activity of loving. And so he wants to contrast these two things and say, hey, which one are you going to be? What's it going to take to be a loving church? Now, that's not the only contrast that he's going to give. Now, look now in verse 9 and 10. And when he does, what he's going to do in 9 and 10, he's going to say, hey, uh, there's something ahead of you that you're not quite aware of. There's something more perfect, more complete out there than what is right now. Look at it. Verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, some of your translations say, when perfection comes, what is in part disappears. Now he's contrasting two things. Perfection, completeness, and imperfection, and incompleteness. He's saying, even what you have now, it's only just a small little smidge. It's a pinch. You don't have the whole picture. You can't have it all. Uh, Those things that you think are so important now, uh, you don't have a view yet of what is coming. Uh, There's still something better around the corner. There's still something yet to come. And and the the best that I can understand, when he's talking about when perfection comes, when completeness comes, uh, he's talking about that day, uh, that day when Jesus comes back. He's talking about that day when everybody is in heaven. He's talking about that day when, when heaven and earth are met together and there is a fullness of the kingdom of God and we all get to enjoy the full presence of God's glory. Uh, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the day of completeness or perfection. And so what he's saying is there's a great bit of difference between now and later. And if you don't have a little bit of a view of what's going to happen later, you're not going to really appreciate what's happening now. You see, 
I think what Paul is trying to get us to understand is even with all the distinctives and even with all of the gifts, as wonderful as they might be, that the greatness of a gift is never measured by the gift itself. That the greatness of a gift is measured in the generosity of love that it produces. You see, our gifts are not measured by just how good the gift is, but by the love it produces. You see, some of us, hopefully all of us, will have an opportunity one day to stand before Jesus. And we'll be there at the pearly gates, and and I can't imagine that Jesus is going to go, hey, how big was your gift? But he might say, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the gift? How generous was your love? And so in this contrast between now and later, he just brings up again, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for a church to be loving, to have a clarity of longing for love? Now, because Paul knows that some of us, myself included, uh, might need illustration. Some of you know that uh, I love to have pictures in books. They give illustration and analogy to what's going on. Paul does the same thing. And he's going to give an analogy and he's going to say, hey, it's like, it's like being a parent looking at a child. It's like maybe looking at your childhood from your adult eyes. And he's going to contrast what it's like uh, to be an adult and what it's like to be a child. Listen to what he says. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the childish, uh, the ways of childhood behind me. Have you ever walked through a store with children, young children in particular? Have you? Uh, walk through Target, walk through Walmart sometime, and maybe just to add a little bit to your growth as a Christian, walk by the toy aisle one time. What's going to happen? I need it. I really want it. Can I have it? Now, as a parent, right, your first response is no. But after that, you realize something much deeper behind your no. There's something better for you. Maybe it's a situation where you know uh, that that if you were to afford them that toy, they wouldn't get something else that they really need. Maybe it's like a meal or a roof over their head. And you realize that there is something better that is beyond their view, that is beyond their capability of really understanding. That's what he's saying. That's the analogy that Paul is trying to give. 
He's trying to give the analogy of a parent looking back on their own children or perhaps looking back on their own childhood and saying, oh, oh, I get it now. I know why that had to be a no. When I was in high school, I wasn't the best athlete, but I wanted to be athletic, and so I went out for the basketball team, and, and it took me a while. I really had to work really hard to finally earn my varsity letter. It was like the proudest moment of my life up to that point. I was like, yes, I've done it. I've arrived. And then an even better day was when I got my varsity letter jacket. Now, I don't know if that's a thing anymore, but like I, I still have my, my, my letterman jacket. It hangs in my closet. But what would you think of me if I started wearing my letterman jacket around with a big 97 written on the side of it? You'd think I was pretty weird, wouldn't you? And if you didn't think I was pretty weird, I guarantee there's other people that'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? We don't do that anymore. Why? I mean, it was really important to me. At the time, it was the only thing that I really cared about. I just wanted my varsity letter. And what Paul is trying to say is, there's something better. There's something around the corner. Uh, sometimes in childhood, we think, oh no, the world is going to end. Someone said something mean to me. The world is going to end. No, it's not. There's something better around the corner. Sometimes we think, oh no, I failed the test. It's going to, you know, mom's going to be mad at me. My life is over. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's something better around the corner. Have you ever had a child that, Maybe didn't get a homework assignment in, and they just begin crying, and, oh, what's going to happen? And you're trying as a parent to say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And you can say that because you have a perspective that they don't have yet. That's what Paul's trying to say. Hey, hey, listen. Would you listen to me for just 10 seconds? I'm trying to give you a perspective that you don't have yet. I'm trying to let you know of a joy, of something better, something around the corner that's better than what you think is the only thing that matters. And for the Corinthian church, the only thing that seemed to matter for them at the time was these wonderful gifts. And so we have to reevaluate ourselves and we have to go, hey, what is it that I am really into right now that I need perspective from God to be able to see something better? That's what Paul's trying to say here. And he's trying to say that something better is love. Now, if we haven't quite gotten it, he doesn't give up on us. He gives us another analogy. In fact, he takes us to a roadside old gas station and he takes us into the restroom. Uh, would you read with me? For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I love it. It's another in the series of contrasts, isn't it? Have you ever gone into one of those really kind of old gas stations that you really wish you didn't have to stop at? 
And it's usually one that has the, um, it has the, the restrooms on the outside. And you have to have a key to get into, and they give you like this long, you know, wooden key. Okay, you've been there too, haven't you? Yeah. And you, you go around, and you have to go in, and, and, and you take care of whatever you got to take care of. But then you notice when you go to the mirror that it's not a mirror, that it's like a sheet of polished metal. And you think, this isn't a mirror. And so you kind of look and you try, and, but it's, it's sort of a mirror, but not really a mirror, and it doesn't really give an accurate reflection. Anybody ever been to Chicago? Uh, there's this very famous uh, piece of art in Millennium Park in Chicago. Everybody calls it the giant kidney bean. It's it's got another name to it, and nobody really knows what that is. But every time I, I have a chance to go to Chicago, I, I, I take the group that I'm with, and we always go see the bean. And, and it's extraordinary. It's this large piece of art, and it's, it's stainless steel, and it's all polished just perfectly. And you can kind of see yourself in it, but it distorts you. I guess that's part of the fun of it, but you go around it and you look in it, but it's not exactly like looking in a mirror. One of the issues in Corinth was they had polished bronze, and that's what they would use for mirrors. They would polish these pieces of metal, and people would look at them, and he's borrowing from that, and he's going, let me tell you what this is really like. You can only see yourself, like right now, like you're looking in a, this piece of bronze. Like when you go into the restroom and there's a, there's a polished piece of metal there, that, that's as clearly as you can see right now. But I'm going to tell you that one day you're going to be face to face with Jesus. You're going to be face-to-face with the the creator of the universe. Uh, You only know a little bit right now, but later on, you're going to know something greater, something better. And that something better is going to include love. Do you notice how he ends this? He ends it how he starts it. Uh, He starts it with love never fails, and he ends it uh, by saying, hey, there's nothing else but love. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Some of you are thinking right now, that doesn't answer our question yet. We know what comforts us, don't we? What comforts us is a love from God that never ends, that never fails, that never gives up, that keeps on going. The challenge is for us to love that way, for us to have enough perspective to really uh, long to love people in that way. So, So what's the answer to our question? What is it that Paul does for us here that answers the question for us, What does it take to be a loving church? And I think the answer is this. I think what Paul is saying here is, think eternity. 
so you'll love eternally. Think eternity so that you will love eternally. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone? I'm, I'm not talking about the kind of disagreement that's like, you know, you think I should drive four miles an hour over the speed limit. I think I should drive six miles an hour. And not that kind of petty sort of disagreement. I mean like a real disagreement. The kind of disagreement where you go, we have nothing to talk about. Have you ever had that kind of disagreement? Many years ago, I was in church and I was working with someone. And we just had a philosophical difference. I mean, it was like at the very foundation of who we thought we were as people, we had differences of opinion. And it hurt us both. We had a really serious disagreement. And I remember sharing with someone else about my frustrations about this other person. I remember sharing with this friend like, oh, I, I don't think they understand and they don't, they, you know, and it usually ends up being like, they just must not love Jesus like I do, right? Because we always love when we're disagreeing with people to put ourselves on the side of Jesus. And this very wise person who was older than me and a leader in their church, they said, Mike, I want you to think about this. I want you to think of what it's going to be like for you in eternity with Jesus in heaven, and they're there. And I thought, what? For the person that you most disagree with, if Jesus' grace for them is as good as it is for you, you better start thinking eternity so that you can love eternally. What does it take for a church to be a loving church, to have the active ingredient of love, to have this clarity about their character, it takes the ability to consistently think eternally. Think eternity so that you can love eternally. Pray with me. Lord God, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And I ask, Lord God, that you will just move in us, move in this church, that it would be said of us, we've got that love and feeling. Lord God, change our perspective. Help us to see more clearly what we can't see. Give us clarity so that we might think beyond what is now to something beyond. Help us not to get so consumed with what we think is so important and really miss what you have in store. Lord, help us not to miss the best. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray.